Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. We are three weeks into our new teaching series where we're exploring the big story of the Bible, starting with Genesis and moving all the way through to Revelation. Last week, we began with the creation of the world and the making of these human images of God placed in God's world to reflect God's character and intention through their worship, through their love, and through their care. And if there's one thing that rings off the pages of these first origin stories, it's this. God's creation is good. And humans have a special place in God's good creation so that together, all of creation can flourish as God intended. Now, That sounds great, doesn't it? But is it true? I mean, really? Because look around. Is God's world, as you see it, really that good? I mean, all you have to do is dip your toe into the news waters just this week alone. And we're immediately confronted with miscarriages of justice, with hate crimes, with racism, with misogyny, suicides, murder suicides, food shortages, unemployment, and the tragic loss of six of our Canadian soldiers. And that's without even mentioning or dipping deep into all the COVID-19 news. Closer to home, I've spent quite a bit of time this last week in heart-rending, tearful conversations with people struggling with mental health, struggling with failing marriages, relapses into addiction, attempted suicides, domestic disputes and financial loss. That was all just this week. And friends, if we're honest, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with us. The world that God originally created is not the world that we currently inhabit. See, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us who we were meant to be. They tell us how we were meant to relate, and even how the world was supposed to work. But Genesis 3, where we go today, tells us why we aren't able to be who we were meant to be, why we aren't able to relate the way we were meant to relate, even the way we want to relate. It reveals a bit of why the world itself just doesn't work the way it was supposed to. Genesis 3, in terms of the story structure, moves us from Act 1, where everything's stable and good and it sort of sets the stage for things, to Act 2, where there's conflict and crisis, where the good world that God created has now become a place of suffering, a place of sin. Genesis 3 helps us answer that basic worldview question that we all ask, we all wonder about, the question, what's wrong? What's wrong with the world? And, as we'll discover, it also begins to point us toward the solution that God will bring. 
But how do we answer that question, what's wrong with the world? Maybe in conversation with friends or family, maybe online. How does that question get answered? There's a lot of options. People immediately serve them up. What's wrong with the world? I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. It's greed. It's selfishness. It's pride. It's lust. Or perhaps more popularly, it's that corporation, this government, those liberals, those conservatives. Or maybe men are the problem. Or actually, women are the problem. It could be abuse of power or patriarchy, white supremacy, lack of forgiveness, inequity or violence, or just money in general, or perhaps the borders that we erect. Or maybe this is a popular one. It's them. <laughs> Whoever them are. Us? No, not us. Them. Our diagnosis reveals our worldview. And in conversations with others, it's a powerful way of understanding more about a person's worldview, the way they frame reality, how they answer the question, what's wrong with the world? Now, as followers of Jesus, our answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, must be brought under the authority of Scripture, beginning right here in Genesis 3, so that the whole Word of God informs, sometimes overturns, challenges, even deepens our convictions. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as we're commanded to do in Romans chapter 12, is first and foremost to be shaped by the very Word of God, the story of Scripture. It's not to allow the ideas that we receive from our human culture or various ideologies or, or political persuasions. We don't allow those to be the primary stories that shape our minds. Rather, it's God's story and God's truth that does that. Now, for those of you who have joined us who are exploring faith in Jesus, I want to just say this about how this works. You see, the Bible as a whole is meant to be the interpretive grid or the interpretive set of glasses through which we see the whole world. It's how Christians are to view the world through God's story. And this story is to shape our minds. However, the truth is, Christians forget that. Or they forget their own story. Sometimes Christians will let other stories dominate their response or their reactions. Or they'll fail to integrate this story with our reality. And as a result, there'll sometimes be a disconnect between the faith that they profess and the lives that they live. This explains why sometimes people can say they follow Jesus and even say a number of the right things and yet believe some pretty foolish ideas, behave in some pretty ungodly ways. I don't mean that harshly or even judgmentally. I say that to explain. It's a challenge for all of us to live up to what we really believe. But also is to help why sometimes there can be a real disconnect between what we think people should be doing if they follow Jesus and what they are actually doing. The goal for all of us is this, whether we're exploring faith or whether we're followers of Jesus, is to let God's word actually begin to shape our understanding of the world. When we do that, our diagnosis of the world then can go down to the source of the problem, which then opens us up to the possibility of renewal 
as God intends. So let's explore Genesis 3 today with this question in mind. At its very root, what's wrong with the world? I'm going to read through Genesis 3 in a few different sections today, and I invite you just to join along wherever you are, on screen or in a physical Bible on your phone. This is how Genesis 3 begins. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so we've got a talking snake here. I just want to point that out if you haven't heard this story before. The snake said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Did God really say? And with that, humanity was sucked into mistrusting the goodness of God. The serpent, in effect, is saying this. You can't trust God. He's not really looking out for you. In fact, he's holding out on you. It's the ultimate conspiracy theory. God knows that if you do the very thing he told you not to do, not only will you not die, as he said you would, but you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear the lie in there? The irony is quite thick because we already know from the story that these humans are already created in the very image and likeness of God. You couldn't get anyone more in creation who was like God than them. His purposes for them are good through and through. He's not holding out on them. In fact, he has dignified their personhood by giving them choice and freedom, the ability to love and worship without compulsion. This is a good God who doesn't want robotic automatons who just all hail, worship, but rather living souls who engage him as real persons in relationship. And yet, they refuse to trust. Rather than ruling over this crafty snake the way they were told to rule, they came under its sway. Rather than following God's leadership, they rejected his word. Rather than reflecting God's good desire for the world, they welcomed sin into God's good creation. And untold destruction came as a result. At the root of so much global and cultural and personal suffering is this conclusion. God cannot be trusted because God is not good. Because you see, if God isn't good and can't be trusted, why would I follow his guidance in my relationships? Why would I listen to him? 
Why would I love my neighbor as myself if it's more likely at the end of the day that that neighbor is just going to use me? Why would I lay down my life for my wife rather than just forcing her to do my bidding? Why would I seek the welfare of those around me instead of using them for my ends? If, if God's not good and can't be trusted, why would I consider others more highly than I consider myself? Why would I reject selfish and prideful attitudes? Why would I care for creation with a view to honoring God? Why would I do any of these things? Why would I choose to love others at the expense of my own rights and privileges? The answer is, I wouldn't. I won't. Obedience to the life-denying, cross-bearing Jesus takes trust in the fundamental goodness of God. And without that trust, I'm going to act for myself, for my own advantage, for my own good. I'm going to set myself up as the judge of what is right and what is wrong, of what is good and what is evil, of who is valuable and who is not. See the way this works? Human sin is sourced in a mistrust of God's goodness. And here's where we need to get personal for a moment before we go any further. Look at these two questions. Is God good and can I trust him? I invite you to ask them for yourself. Where in your life, maybe right now, where in your life are you most tempted to mistrust the goodness of God? Particularly the goodness of God as it relates to him leading your life, like doing what he said, following his word. Where are you most tempted to mistrust his goodness? Is it in your finances? Is it perhaps in the way you relate to your kids, maybe even adult children? Is it in how you are honoring or even dishonoring your parents? Could it be in your education or your future plans? Could it be that the place where it's most difficult to trust God's goodness is in the area of your sexual relationships? What is it for you? Where are you most tempted to mistrust the goodness of God? And as you ask that question, in what way is this an invitation for you? An invitation from God himself who says, I am good. I have your good in mind and I can be trusted. And that though you may not see exactly how or if or why, or, you know, all the details often can be shrouded from us. But we know God is good and we know he can be trusted over the word of anyone else and certainly over the word of a talking snake that we can trust and we can obey. So what is it for you? Well, this first human couple did not trust God's goodness. Instead, they trusted the word of a serpent. And the rest of the story, the rest of history, really, chronicles the fallout of this fundamental distrust of the goodness of God. What happens next? Every relationship that matters shatters. Let's hear the story. Every relationship that matters shatters. Then the man and his wife heard the sound. This is verse 8. The man and the wife Heard, a, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God from among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pause there. Do you see what's happening? The immediate result of human sin is the breaking of all of our basic relationships. God and humans. God, expecting to commune with the man and the woman, can't find them. Where are you? God calls. And the humans, filled with fear, filled with shame, hiding, trying to cover themselves, and when confronted by God, are going to shift the blame everywhere else they can shift it. They blame God, they blame each other, they blame the serpent. Isn't this exactly what happens, though? Isn't this exactly what continues to characterize so many of our fractured relationships everywhere we look? We're often so afraid. We're often filled with shame. We often hide from God, hide from each other, try to cover ourselves with whatever personas or whatever good name or whatever we can. And we blame, blame, blame. Failing to take responsibility, we often want to shift the blame to anyone else who's around us. So much of our broken reality today is packed right here into this short story. Well, then God spells out the details, really the effect that this human sin, this human failure has by bringing suffering to the world. Let's listen to the rest of the story, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Human sin wreaked havoc on everything. Every relationship that mattered shattered. All of God's good creation was now 
subject to frustration, as we heard in Romans 8. The world that God had placed under human authority had been ravaged, and the ripple effects of these actions would be felt now at the deepest level, between each other, between us and the rest of creation, and between us and God. And the result? Snakes in the grass, and strife in the home, and pain in the delivery, and sweat in the weeds. Judgment and exile. There's so much to unpack in this epic story. And I do invite you to reflect and mull on it, discuss it with this question in mind. How does this story help us actually interpret what's wrong with the world? How does it give us the diagnosis about what's wrong with us? And don't get hung up on whether snakes can talk or if the fruit was an apple. I mean, that's fun conversation over coffee, but don't let it distract you from the main point of Genesis 3. Focus instead on the power of this story to reinterpret our broken world, to reframe the nature of human sin, the effects of our rebellion. And see how all this stuff that we know is wrong with the world, we intuitively react to it, the shaming of our bodies, the hurts in our families, domestic abuse, frustration in our work, despair in our relationships, or even just a deep sense of fear and anxiety that the God who made us would really crush us if he could. All the ways that we see relationships shattered, from global politics to environmental pillaging to hungry children to angry spouses to sickness and dying and death. See how all that stuff is traceable back to this one thing. When human images of God reject the God they image, they destroy the world he loves. Can we just take a moment to acknowledge that? With Paul in Romans 8, that we live in a groaning world? That we ourselves groan? This world isn't right. And it's right to acknowledge it. This world is gasping in pain. Everywhere we look, there's a shattering, a brokenness. And it's right for us to lament that pain and that brokenness. But is all lost? Is creation doomed? I mean, where is the good news in the fall? I mean, I think some of us at this point would just expect God to sort of wrap it up and say, well, whew. That was an experiment. You know, how about we go back to the drawing board and come up with a different plan for how we'll do it next time? I think we might expect that. But instead, at the very moment when human beings chose mistrust over trust, chose rebellion over obedience, and death over life, God pivoted toward our renewal. God initiated redemption in the very hour that creation rebelled. Last week, on a Zoom call with John Wenrick, our uh, denominational president in the Evangelical Covenant Church, he shared a quote with a few of us. It was from Eric Little, the famous Olympian runner and missionary to China. He was made famous through that movie, uh, Chariots of Fire. And he said this, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. But God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God's love is still working. He comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. 
And so, has paradise been lost? Not quite. Badly damaged, yes. Smoking in ruins and shattered on the ground, most definitely. And yet, God is not helpless among the ruins. How? Well, it's at this very moment of greatest betrayal that God hatches his gospel plan. You know, the man and the woman have barely wiped the juice off their faces before God initiates his plan to restore it all again. And we see this remedy emerge in just three ways as we finish today. Let me point them out. First is in the promise that he gives of a serpent-crushing seed. The promise of offspring. You heard it. When he was cursing the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the promise of Jesus. That is the promise that Jesus will come. Here it is. Yes, there's going to be strife. There's going to be war. There's going to be enmity. But there will be a victor. And right here at this moment of greatest betrayal, God promises the coming of his own son who will be one of us in our sin and in our suffering. We don't know how. We don't know when. That's going to be developed in the story. But the promise is given here. Second, we see the provision of a sin-covering sacrifice. You know, Adam and Eve tried to stitch together fig fig, figs to cover their nakedness, but the Lord God, we read in verse 21, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did these skins come from? Well, they came from animals. God sacrificed animals, his own creation, in order to cover the shame of this man and this woman. Blood has been spilled already here in the story to cover sin. And that symbolism is very rich. It points us toward the story where there will be animal sacrifices at first, but then ultimately toward the middle, the climax of the story, which was in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, climaxed in the person of Jesus where he offers himself as the sacrifice to cover our sin and then goes to another tree of life, that cursed but most wonderful cross where he spilled his own blood to cover our sin and shame. Do you hear the gospel unfolding? Jesus will come, it's the promise of the seed, to cover our sins through his sacrifice. That's the skins. And third, we see God's remedy emerge in the grace of their banishment. The man has become like one of us, God says, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so as a result, he is banished. Now, you may not immediately see how that's a grace thing or how that's a gospel thing, but what are they being kept from? They're being kept from eating the tree of life and living forever. Now you think, what's the harm in that? Isn't that exactly what they need? But because they've now fallen, to live forever would be like a living hell. Until they themselves have been redeemed, until they've been renewed and restored and back in right relationship, eternal life in that sense would be an eternal damnation. God banishes them in order to protect them. Initiating his plan to bring renewal and redemption so that when the time was right, when sin had been covered, when the curse had been overcome and death had been defeated and new creation had been born, then and only then would they be able to live forever as God intended 
Now to see this, you've got to sweep right to the end of the story where you find the tree of life again in full fruit. This isn't a mystery story where, you know, looking at the end robs you of the benefit of the story. It doesn't ruin the plot. In fact, this is the story where the plot is best understood if you know how it ends. Well, in the very last chapter of this whole book, Revelation chapter 22, we hear this. This beautiful vision of what's to come. The angel shows John, the prophet, the river of life. And what do you know? On each side of the river stands the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And then listen to this. No longer will there be any curse. That's right in the last part of the book. The tree of life shows up again. So back here in Genesis 3, God banishes them in order to protect them because he doesn't want them to live eternally in a cursed state. He wants first to deal with the curse, deal with the brokenness, so that when we are restored, we are restored fully to the eternal life that he intended for us. And when you pull these three threads together, you find the gospel in the fall. Jesus will come, that's the seed promised, to cover our sins with his sacrifice. That's the garments that were made of skin so that we can be restored to the eternal life that God intended for us. And that was what the banishment was all about. Even in our moment of gravest sin, our greater God works for our greatest good. And the whole rest of the story is the unfolding of this good gospel plan. So what's wrong with the world? Simple answer, we are. We don't blame others for that. We take responsibility. We recognize that we stand in need of a Savior. We stand in need of forgiveness. We live in a world that is broken by human sin and rebellion and fueled by a mistrust in God's goodness. And what's the remedy? He is. God's plan of renewal through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, that is, trusts in him and his goodness, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And friends, a God that good, a God who's not only not willing to give up on all of his creation, but more than that, willing to become one of his own creation, to take upon himself the sin and rebellion and suffering of that creation and die in our place, that is a God that you can trust. That whatever comes, whatever goes, whatever the cost, he's good and we can trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even in the moment of our fall, you initiated a plan for us. May this story ring out for us as a story of clarity and diagnosis, helping us understand what's wrong with the world, but also a story of hope that you, at the moment of our greatest need, pivoted toward our redemption because you are good and you can be trusted. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me leave you with this as a benediction. I pulled it right out of Romans 16.20 because it seems to suit. Paul said this to the Roman church. He said, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. God be with you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. 
We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following Him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.